everyone, welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. I am joined, as always, by my good friend and social scientist, Leon. Hello, Leon. I'm in space again. Fuck. <laughs> we are always in space. Always. We are in space again. Wow. Yeah. Uh, from one shift to another, we are here. <laughs> again. As was for Doing this thing. <laughs> As as the prophecies have indicated as much, yes. No, uh, we were talking about another shift that we very very professionally hinted at last time we were recording. Yes, my dear, with our dear friend Holly. Yeah, no. So yeah, ship space again. I'm so sorry for those who don't like that sort of thing, <laughs> but I do think this is a bit more. It's going to be a bit more of an accessible episode for the people who are not into sci-fi. But that's not out there. Yes and no, but. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Fair, fair enough. Good point. <laughs> but to be honest, if um, it's somewhat interesting if people aren't that interested in sci-fi, as I am a literal science fiction researcher. Yeah. No, definitely. So that's fun. The fun thing is that in the previous episode, you mentioned the name of what we were talking about. I cut that out. Oh. Hints were left in, but the name was put, took, took, taken away. But there were enough hints, if, if you know what we're talking about. It's yes. the Expanse. Bah. I feel like it requires a sort of sound effect because it's called the Expanse. Yeah, it, it has these, uh, it needs these trailer horns, like, like you know, like, uh, like Mass Effect uses. <laughs> Most sci-fi does that, and the Expanse show intro fair does enough. that as well, which, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like they give it a fair shake. It's a bit more um, well woven into the intro song, which I do quite like, by the way, the show, but that's not <laughs> Here or there. We're here to talk about the first three books, am I right? We are. So it's, um, what is the Expanse as a uh, material object rather than, you know, as a, as a series of books, Leon? It's a, yeah, no, it's an, it's indeed a nine book series. It's a, TV, a Amazon, well, okay. First sci-fi then Amazon TV show, and uh, that has officially been ended, as far as I'm aware, after six seasons, which is too bad because there are nine books. Oh, they don't finish. They don't finish. No, oh, I'm fuck. so sorry to. I thought they did. Yeah, I don't know. There are some like rumors about like, oh, it should come back. People are just like, you know, because they're okay. Uh, I can't say why it might be coming yeah. back because that would be spoiling book six. I'm not yeah. going to do that. It's a, it would be a micro spoil, but that's still, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the, the nine books, the first book coming out in uh, ha- having been released in t- the 2nd of June, 2011. Um, that's when the first book came out, Leviathan Wakes. And we're going to talk about Caliban's War, the second book, and Abaddon's Gate, the third book. Yeah. And that will be it. Three books, one episode. Let's go. Here we go. So, <laughs> it's also a Telltale game now. I'm sorry, yes, I almost forgot. <laughs> very shortly. <laughs> and uh, speaking of games, I said I was going to shoehorn this in, and I will now. Today, or on day of recording, to bloody date it, the 8th of August, uh, it's 10 years since the release of Papers, Please. One of my favorite games oh. of all time. So, yeah, I, I could not say it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good omen, I'll say that. It's auspicious. Right. So th- that being said, uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, I couldn't, I couldn't resist, couldn't resist mentioning it, uh, as I just saw it today. You shouldn't. <laughs> hey, thanks, it's a, it's a true cult classic, I would say. 
It is. I think it's. Um, I mean, it's. I, th- I think one of my favorite developers of all time. Uh, Lucas Pop's great. Uh, we'll talk more about him at some point. I'm sure sooner than you think. Anyway, back to this to space. I went into space and uh, into the expanse. So, what is the expanse about? I I made a quick. I don't know, write-up thingy, uh, which I'm not going to read through it directly, but I'm going to mention it because we there's a lot to talk about, and we're, we're not, we can't cover it all, even if we did just one episode for each book, and we do not... And a nine-part series feels a bit extreme, so, you know, three is a lot better. So The Expanse, effectively, is about a future where, by and large, class struggle and the political realities that we both understand and comprehend now have grown to encompass both Mars and pretty much the entire solar system, mostly. The entire solar system, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, well. So humanity is trying to expand uh, in, within this <laughs> limit. Uh, ding. <laughs> ding. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> the expanse, expand, ding counter is going to be through the roof. But it, it's still struggling with these same issues. So, uh, Important note, this is leagues away from any kind of utopian future. Like, right from the start, this is very clear. And in all of this, humanity's current troubles with a UN-governed Earth and the Martian Congressional Republic uh, currently verge on war with both themselves and the third force. Well, we'll talk at least about this last element in detail, the Outer Planets Alliance, Effectively, a sort of not as organized or not as institutionalized, but kind of it, odd thing, which is the closest thing to a political body encompassing or political movement encompassing those peoples who do not live in Earth or domed Mars. Yeah, it's we're going to call them the OPA, by the way. Yes, uh, these <laughs> the, the ones who live in the stations, in the asteroid belt and more. The Belters, for obvious reasons, that's that's who they are. Not not all Belters are OPA, yes. but um, OPA is the radical faction, the and the closest thing we have to a anti imperialist political body. Yes, it's not so much political body, but that's a journey we are undertaking. In in it's it's one of the more prominent journeys, I would argue, in these three books. Yeah, but I just just want to clarify <laughs> that with us. The no, people are called the Belters, and they have a radical faction among them called the OBA. Yeah, Sorry. perfect. No, no, thank you. <laughs> so in the midst of these conflicts and this status quo, the very start of the first book, humanity uh, starts rubbing up against truly alien forces that, you know, as things go, upset the current tentative balance of power and forces, and, uh, you know, enter new issues, new problems, new conflicts. Things go bananas. and. What is what is quite fantastic is how, in the expanse, the issues of class, politics, economics, and culture are as impressive as the terrifying realities of an alien time bomb set up billions of years ago that may change everything. So join yes. us <laughs> as we talk about as much as the hard issues of living in a cramped asteroid and the political consequences of flying straight into the void. Welcome. Right. Yeah, that, that's quite a, quite a way to describe it, an alien time bomb. But it's okay. Yeah, um, I mean, before <laughs> I hand it off to, to, to you, Leon, the, the first thing I want to mention is uh, there's going to be a lot of spoilers out all around for the free box. 
because there's a yeah, lot. Yeah, we're just going to start. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say the books are very enjoyable with the sport. We, even if you would know all this, I think, because they're really good. The prose is fantastic, which yeah. really needs to be mentioned. And it's just really good. So read it if you want to. Listen to us as well. Uh, and watch the show. So yeah, uh, join us. Join us on the Expanse journey. I will say real quick, maybe don't watch the show right now since oh, yeah. the SAG-AFTRA strike is going on. Pirate it, though. Of course. It's, it's an Amazon yeah. thing, so you know. It's an Amazon. It's already ended, so yeah, just just pirate it. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Um, It's allowed now. Um, If, if people Indeed. are starting to take away people's homes, we are allowed to, uh, we, we are allowed to pirate, I think. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> Anyway, so that, that's just a real quick notification. Go ahead and buy the books. I don't think they are involved. Uh, they are published by Orion Books. Ooh. I don't think they are. Maybe they are a subsidiary. We should have put that up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dear <laughs> listener. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to implore you uh, to do your own research on that matter and uh, support, especially if you're from the United States, which a chunk of our audience is, I believe. Uh, please, uh, once again, consume responsibly if you are going to consume. Yes. That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, so politically correct disclaimer uh, out of the way. <laughs> Feel free to continue. I am so sorry. No, no, I was, I was literally handing it off to you. Uh, because oh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna hold back on spoilers because there's too much to talk about uh, yeah. in this in the expanse. We'll make a um, soft attempt at like some linearity with our spoilers. So the first spoilers we'll get into is the, like the book one, and if you're like by that point you're like, oh man, that this sounds really cool, then just stop, and this episode will be there for you. You know, so you can just read the books. It's cool. Don't worry about it. I would say even bit spoilers. This book is, you can tell me everything that ha- is going to happen in this book series. And I would still be marveling at how it happens. It's one of those books, which I think is such a great indica- indication of quality. Exactly. And yeah, no, anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I was trying to get at. And <laughs> yeah, so the thing, funny thing to like start off uh, a more macroscope of things is that this is written by not one, uh, 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 but two guys. Two guys have written this book. They share the same writer's pseudonym called James S.A. Corey. Which is funny, because I didn't know that at first. <laughs> and I thought, so the main character of this series is called, well, one of the main characters of this series is called James Holden. Arguably the least interesting guy around, but that's not a hint of there. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll get to that. Don't worry. But the main guy is called James Holden. And I thought James S. A. Corey was a, just a singular person. I was like, Christ, really? You just named the main character after yourself? You know, it's touche on, like, the the verboseness of that. I, I don't know what to call it. But, um, yeah. It turns out uh, it's two other guys. I believe one of them is called Daniel. Mm. There you go. <laughs> I... They they like, by the way, when they have a Twitter account called James, James S.A. Corey, and they never differentiate from each other. They always pretend to be one guy. Nice. So I think this is their wishes for us to pretend this is just one guy. So once again, I'm sorry, dear writers. Uh, thank you for writing The Expanse. <laughs> yeah, no. I know you're listening. Don't <laughs> worry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, I'm, I'm just going to refer to the writer uh, yeah. from here on out instead of do writers uh, sometimes. I don't mm-hmm. know why, but yeah. So that being said, thought it was a fun little detail. I heard that the this this series was originally planned to be a tabletop game. <laughs> I see I that. don't know if that's true, but I heard that, uh, that 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 was a plan, and it just got like so 
out there that they started to write books about it. <laughs> then I was like, oh, that's that's funny. Usually mainly because I am kind of, I, I, I mean this with, with the best of intentions, but I'm usually against this idea of, oh, let's make our tabletop campaign into a book. Or maybe let's make a TV show out of our tabletop campaign. <laughs> I think they are such a distinct form of storytelling that doesn't translate very well. Even when it's done wonderfully, like, let's say, the animated uh, Critical Role show, TV show, I think they give it a very good shake. Um, it's just, you know, I, I, I can always see the elements there that are clearly from a tabletop campaign, and I realize that they would have been so much more funny if I was watching a tabletop live stream. So it's, <laughs> it, it always falls a bit flat for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Once again, it's fine, and I have nothing strong against it, but this this is actually... Good. This is this is quite well written, I would argue. So uh shows what I know, really. <laughs> yeah, this is so, this yeah. is very good. Yeah, but I uh, we start off with two point of view characters. Yeah. Josephus Miller. I think mostly Miller the entire time. They made James they make James into Jim. So it's Jim James Jim Holden. <laughs> but most people call him Holden unless you are on the ship with your crewmates with James Holden, then you didn't call him Jim or boss, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but um yeah. We we start off with this interesting setting, I would argue. This this very panicky, traumatized point of view. Uh, kinda like the Song of Ice and Fire books. They start off with a point of view character that never will return. Um <laughs> and we see uh some very we hear we read some very disturbing things about uh, a person that's like you know stuck on a ship and there's people around blocking them into like little corners of the ship and whatnot and not a good time man um, <laughs> and this this once again we don't understand how relevant this is going to be oh boy <laughs> and I think to to touch upon once again what's so good about this book is then the fact that such a generic story beat namely being seized by quote-unquote very well-funded pirates is then going to turn out to be severely crucial to literally everything so yeah that's um <laughs> but it doesn't read as such and i do think that's a one of those nice ways that a a writer can like communicate to you that the writer doesn't think you're stupid yeah which is always appreciated i would argue it's very good at, you know, both withholding and, and controlling information for you as a book and gives you just enough to have some sense. And then it very quickly and easily turns things around. The expanse wildly amongst many things. And uh, I think a, a kind of thematic approach is the only way that we're, we're ever going to do something uh, because it's, it's, it's a lot, so much. Um, and I think that's a great start because so much in The Expanse is about tragedy and, you know, horror. It's a lot about horror, actually. The horror of it all. The horror of the blue. <laughs> it, it, its setting is very subtle, I would argue. Yeah. Um, it feels very large, despite taking place on only a couple of quote-unquote places. From, like, two stations... And a ship that kind of flies around. Mm-hmm. Not even that large of a ship at that. Yeah. The little ship that could, in many ways, would argue. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so the setting feels really large. And mm-hmm. 
it's it I would say it's very well woven together as well. The fact that we start off with only two point of view people, uh, two point of view characters in the first book, it's very gentle. Yeah, it's very like okay, back and forth, back and forth, and sometimes they meet as well, which is <laughs> funny. I will say, this is. I was first at first. I was hesitant to recommend this book series to Frank mm-hmm. because it is not necessarily interested in depicting any good utopian ideals. <laughs> I would argue it isn't. Um, it it's yeah, and I I feel like it's a bit uh, depressing because in this setting, once again, we have the United United Nations. Remember that the defunct body, political body that we have in the real world that safeguards Western imperialism and capitalism? It's great. <laughs> um, who wouldn't love it? Yeah, it rules the world now, so they're kind of a planetary unified under the United States and our nations. Uh, well, okay, well, that's a Freudian slip-up. It once colonized Mars. That's a thing we're probably also never going to do, but yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> it, it just doesn't make any sense. It's so stupid. But it, other than that, we, we, we kind of developed terraforming. That's cool. Well, barely. Yeah, well, it, it goes very fucking slowly. <laughs> but apparently it is going. So it's set in the year 2300, I believe, something. Yeah. Yeah. And they've barely started. Yeah, well, the advance in the expanse is noticeable, I would say, but mm. not unbelievable. It's still, it still feels very grounded. And there, I would say it has uh, two very simple indicators for that. Namely, we don't use super advanced weaponry yet. Yeah. And we don't use FTL. Yes. I would say these are very material realities in which we ground uh, this storyline. Mm-hmm. Things get a little bit, uh, a little bit funny uh, sometimes when we when we do fast and light travel. Uh, it, it causes some problems storytelling sometimes. Um, that's fine. It's, it's fine. I, I'm not. I'm not that picky about it. But uh, yeah, warp and FTL is a bit. Is 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 quite a thing. That it's going to be cohesive, and the way this book series establishes its own rules and then kind of plays with them a little bit. I love it. Plays with them in a way that enhances the narrative in such interesting ways. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Exactly, because it is setting up. I think that's the old thing about portray- this portrayal of space. It's extremely grounded. It's very like this, <laughs> not dialectically necessarily, uh, but it's a very materialist <laughs> series. It's oh, ve- yeah. It's yeah. very grounded in, in the, re- the economical, social and political relationships that connect people and that relate these experiences. So on the one hand, yes, Mars has kind of been oddly colonized basically there's some domes uh, and terraforming is going at a snail's pace it has started generations before it'll end generations after at least yeah at this point in time by the end of the third book that's that's how the way things look it makes the sagrada familia look like nothing (laughs) pretty much yes (laughs) (laughs) sorry it's just a little anyway And and yet, one of the things that is so significant, and I think it's selling the way we start, is we start with Holden in an ice freighter. We're talking about transporting <laughs> water, transporting vital resources from ice asteroids 
towards stations, rather are the locations where these are precious resources. And when things start going awry, that's not just, <laughs> oh, there's lack of water. That's not just scarcity. No, we're talking about a very delicate balance. We're talking about an economical conflict that, or an economical problem that starts as, you know, they can do in the real world, uh, spiraling. <laughs> and, you know, how did this happen? Who did this? Who didn't? It's interesting that you mentioned that about the non-utopian element, and I like it. It, it reminds me a lot, in a very different way, because they're trying to do different things, of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312. Uh, oh, right, yeah. That one that. portrays a kind of utopian potential. This one, um, this one doesn't. <laughs> I feel it is very responsible about its dystopian elements, though. Yes, it's it's the kind of thing, right? Like, it's it's pretty rough, it's pretty difficult, but it's not always oh, terrible God. all the time, every single moment, every single place, which... Um, yeah, that's not... The Cold War's the thing again. That's cool. <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, go on. No, you're right, but this time it's the United States against the United States in a different shape. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to have to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to have to explain that a little bit. Of course, go um, ahead. So we, we they're colonizing Mars, um, and and Mars was like fuck you, and it pulled the United States on like the British Empire, so to speak. The UN in this case is the British Empire, and Mars is the United States. Mm-hmm. However, the UN, a uh, the UN just like in real life, is dominated by the most powerful Western nation, the United Nations of America, mm-hmm. and therefore the UN has some characteristics with um. United States of America. Mainly, this is identified through their colonization or colonial relation with the belts. The belt, once again, is a belt of asteroids rich with resources. And there are no native people, which is an important distinction. Yes. However, there are people that you could, one could argue, um, there's, uh, I would love to do an episode on the notions and different approaches of nativity. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the word, right? Uh, Nativeness. Okay, oh, I'm so sorry if it's wrong. But just how we approach the concept of being native. Yeah. Um, and the severe colonial lens that we always view this this concept through. I'm not going to do that <laughs> right now. Uh, we, there's, there's so much to get into, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But I will say, cl- just clear, discernible colonial relation the United Nations has with the belt. And people started to live on these stations. And people started to, you know, do as people do. And procreate, and and they they those children also lived on those stations, and those children were born in space, with non one g gravity. One g gravity is just the gravity we have on Earth. Yeah. And in space, this is not needed. So, and uh, generating gravity is sometimes not very easy. Extremely difficult process. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's um it's it's cheaper to once again keep low gravity, a quarter or a half a half a g. This, uh, very logically, and this is what uh, Frank, I hope, feel free to correct me, Frank, <laughs> is meant with, like, how grounded this, this thing is. Um, nothing magical happens or whatever. It's not, once again, very not ut- utopian or whatever. <laughs> but it, it has the very real consequence of people having different bone structures. Yeah. Because our bones are shaped by 1G gravity. And there's a bunch of physics to get into here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but just... Just imagine belters to be not be able to survive on one G gravity. Yeah. For example, imagine if this if all of a sudden you were twice as heavy out of nowhere. 
Uh, that's 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 messed up. Or try to like leave orbit from uh, from Earth into the space. Then you are very much more heavy than, than I don't know how many times uh, you more heavy than you are than your own body weight. But that, once again, it's a reason it requires very special training. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so my point being is that um, all these elements are at play. All these the this they never forget that they are in space, which I yeah. thought I would find a lot more obnoxious than I did. But okay, real quick, going back to the United Nations. Mm-hmm. They colonized uh, Mars. Mars was like, no. Somehow, that is the thing that happened, which is like the first and only, th- uh, well, for the first three books, that is, the first and only thing that I'm like, I don't know about that one, Chief. <laughs> it's <laughs> It doesn't really make sense for the United Nations to be beaten back by uh, Mars. They kind of weren't. Uh, Mars didn't, as, as the book describes it, it didn't give humanity the stars. But it did give them the solar system, because they they developed a thing, or a Martian developed a thing called the Epstein drive. Uh, Solomon Epstein uh, made a drive, little space engine, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> that can go really fast. And yeah, so it it did g- give people the asteroids in the other far corners of the uh, solar system. And yeah, so. That's kind of where we're at. Somehow, according to this book, Mars has become stronger than Earth. Right? Well... They have and they haven't. Okay, so Mars yeah. has pursued the doctrine of superior firepower. Yeah. Let's just say this. Let's put it like and, that. And as Holden puts it, the uh, eggheads at UN Strategy claim to uh, lose a on- longer ongoing war against Mars. Unless they hit first and they hit them hard. That's the only way the United Nations can win. Who have more ships than Mars, the Mars Congressional Republic, or the MCRN, the Mars uh, Fleet. Did I say that right? MC, MCR. Mars Congressional Republic Navy. Oh yeah, so MCRN, right. <laughs> um, do, do we want to talk about the names for that? Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not collective commons. Let's okay. move on. <laughs> It's no collective comments though, so that, no, that's a one. It's, it's, that's uh, a one of. it's not explained what 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 it's, <laughs> this, the Congressional Republic is supposed to be. So uh, let's move on for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some. Okay, no. there's a certain point of view character in the second book called Avas- and the Christian Avasarella. She she does you get some insight into political dimensions. Some of my favorite chapters in these first three books, by the way. <laughs> um, Christian Avasarella, my favorite war criminal. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> she she really is. Um, other than that gonna get to christian don't worry i know we will essentially this all resulted in two big superpowers having a cool little neo cold war with each other uh because they both have enough nukes to glass each other's planets um <laughs> which sounds familiar huh hmm. anyway um <laughs> can't wait for the bay of pigs anyway so it's it's dil- part two no just kidding sadly there, there's no communists at play here but okay anyway so um uh, what's, what's his name again the guy who believes aliens should be communists. Posada. Posada. I'm so sorry, Mr. Posada. Uh, <laughs> turns out uh, spacefaring, according to uh, James S. Corey, can be achieved <laughs> through non-communist nations or uh, planets or whatever. That's, but anyway, that's not here or there. Yeah, so these two superpowers, essentially, which are sadly very both much just versions of the United States, according to 
well, uh, currently to both of us, I would say. Yeah. Um, I would have loved some more broader characteristics, but, you know, imperialists are going to be as imperialists do. Yeah. And they both turned their eyes towards the belt and was like, well, let's devour those people together. And Earth was like, yeah. Okay, sorry. The United Nations was like, yeah, sure. Why not? This is a amicable, stillmate, Cold War ensuing status quo for both of them. So yeah, sorry for the monologue, Frank. <laughs> so. No, it's fine. I think that's interesting because it kind of sets up that even beyond like, okay, this is not an ideal future. There's a lot of problems here. But also it's like, and and I think this is one of the key points about the book and I, it really interesting. It's like these, if the problems or the, the let's put it plainly, the class relations that we have today, if they are not, you know, fully overcome, and shall we say uh, <laughs> overturned rather in full, yeah. they can just as easily be replicated and recreated under different circumstances. The belters yeah. have effect are effectively a kind of created underclass as workers subjected to you know it's like oh no these are the new li- living conditions and whatever and they are then somewhat directly marginalized and aside from a uh, hmm, heavy dose of racism they are then pretty much. Uh, very, very oppressed, really. Uh, there's no other way to yeah. put it. Well, it's, it's, I'm happy because the book understands that imperialist capitalism will always create underclasses. Yes, exactly. And upper classes. And this is defined by belters, or uh, the, the, the literal slur we have for them, by the way. It's one of those books. Uh, they're called skinnies because they are very long and thin. Because once again, low G, so their bodies look different. Yeah, And there is, I don't think it is a slur, but okay. There's a quote-unquote slur for the Mars and Earthers, which is called the Inners, because they are more in on the inner side of the solar system. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's a slur, maybe, but they don't like it as much well, because they're assholes. Carlos de Baca calls it a slur when Anderson uh, uses it. Mm. Anderson? No, sorry, not Anderson. Um, Ashford. Ashford, sorry. Both start with the A. Fuck it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, a lot yeah. of characters. So, a lot of characters. But somebody from Earth would be very eager. It reminds me of the white women who think Becky is a slur. <laughs> so, you know, I, people who don't... Un- uh, the, the, <laughs> this book, by far and large, understands that racism and, once again, severe discrimination is not a two-way street. It It flows one way, and it flows the same way, coincidentally, way of power flows surprise surprise and this book understands that better than most i would argue yeah i, w- I want to add something to that as well yeah. especially in that the non-distinction frankly between earth and mars earth and mars see each other as wholly alien it's like oh these martians they did do in that they are you know heavily worried about their militarism and whatever and like all oh, the people on earth they are what's the word i'm looking for uh, like drugged out, uh, they are the humans from Wally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're the, um, they're lord, you know, bread and circus, whatever. They have all their benefits, yeah. and they're they have a universal indolent. basic income. Yeah, yeah. Indolence, yes. That that's the word I was thinking. Do we want to talk about universal basic <laughs> income real quick? Uh, we can. I just on? want to mention the, the the point is that you know they they see each other as you know they're they're different, the Martians and the Earthers. They are distinct fright almost a distinct species and that's why i think the writing is very good when we read that we're just like 
this is so stupid. They are obviously still the same. Even the belters are still the same. And it's like, okay, the, the belters, like, okay, they're, they've got a different kind of biology because they grow up in lower, much lower gravity. But they're obviously still the same. Earth and Mars still look the fucking same. This is insane nonsense. Yeah. And the book gets that of like how these yeah. prejudices, this nationalism, this uh, insularity can ensue at times oh, uh, between one and the other. And because they, they define the belt, uh, the belters as tribal, as insular, whatever, uh, driven by conflict yeah. and a common enemy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's said in the fourth book, but the sentiment is there before, so I'm not making anything up. <laughs> and yet, it, the the book understands, like, as we read that, it's like, this is, it, it's all, it feels silly, uh, because we can very easily read through it. We're encouraged to, because, like, they're obviously the same people. They're, they're all just fucking people, for Christ's sakes. But that, that relationship gets, I'm not going to say spelled out. Because the book respects the reader a lot, yes. But it very much like this is this is this kind of it's kind of funny, kind of strange, isn't it? It's like oh, look at these people saying that they're so different, and yet are they really? Are they really that different? Hmm. Yeah. In this way, the POV writing also really helps. Yes. As a as a way of the author to distance their own potential opinions on the conversation that's going on. Which sadly has been like, surprise, surprise, there's a lot of bad, bad media analysis going out here, uh, or literature analysis, uh, whereas if something bad happens in a book, it is said then that, oh, well, the author must be okay with that to some degree, because otherwise they won't put it in their book. Oh, yeah, I've seen that, unfortunately. I, there's, there's a bit more nuance to that, but not much. Not not, not much, actually. I, I have a, an interesting parenthesis to that, though, which... Um... It's literally something I read this morning. I am going through uh, Umberto Eco's The Open Work, Obra Verde. Oh. And the, the, the prologue or the preface, that which but uh, done by the editors of the Brazilian translation, mentioned how other writers at the time, both in Italy and outside of it, reacted to that idea. And so there's a really interesting quote uh, about... An, an author at the time, uh, you know, a, a left author or left-meaning author talking about the idea exposed by Umberto Eco. You know, it's like similar to those of uh, Roland Barthes, death of the author, that, that separation, the look at uh, more inside and within the text and, you know, kind of separating the relationship of authority with the figure of the author. And here, here we go. Uh, th- this is a very good quote. Should we consider the the progressive character of a writer not by his ideological standing, but by his expressive technique, uh, accusing Echo of excessive formalism and the like? But what is the point here, and how is, does this relate to what Leon mentioned? In a sense, for for the author's position, no. For the text's position, absolutely. And well, it's, it's somewhat interesting in terms of the pseudonym. It doesn't matter what James S.A. Corey thinks, regardless of him not being a real person. <laughs> them, yeah. Regardless of him being a them, but in like the more, <laughs> the non-cool, non-binary way. Yeah. But it matters what the text is saying and what the text is expressing. And in this sense, how the text expresses and demonstrates these relationships and the judgment, so to speak, then espoused in that representation and in literary techniques and forms, uh, it's quite crucial. 
So yeah, just taking a, a gentle page from uh, Horvango's formalism zone, because you know it's, you we don't need to we we must separate those things, but that separation needs to be careful. And in a sense, it's like yeah, a, an author can depict something terrible in their books, and that genuinely says nothing about their political or social beliefs. It literally doesn't. I suppose it can, depending on context. Well, of course, yeah. no, of but, course. Yeah. Uh, I am I'm being a bit a little extreme to no, prove no. the point, but <laughs> uh, totally. it's when we're doing media analysis, we need to look at the media for the media. We need to look at the book for the book, and of course, we will draw parallels. We will draw comparisons, and we will pull, draw the author back in, or the authors, or whoever, at one point or another. That's that's not really escapable. It's it's more of a theoretical stance more than anything, but. We we don't we shouldn't confuse those things because then we'll miss yeah. out on a lot of what is being done, which is the the issue of that. It's like oh, you accuse the author of that. He's like you're not reading the text, you're not dealing with the text, you're not engaging with it, and you're not considering which was the whole point of this of the author, the role of the reader, which is what we're doing. Anyway, yeah. a, a brief diatribe, but I think a significant one, especially for. It's timely given that there is no real author, or, or the auth- the named author is not a real person. <laughs> no, definitely. No, I yeah. It has been a thing that I was quite concerned about a little bit, uh, like, recommending this book series so much, because I was like, where the fuck are you on the political spectrum, Jason- <laughs> James S. A. Corey? <laughs> Yeah, because um, it was it was legitimately. Normally, I'm quite decent at it. I would like to <laughs> pat myself on the back here real quick, but it's it's it's, it's difficult. This time it is. It really is. I think this it it adds to it being two guys instead of one guy or one person mm-hmm. writing it. And so I think that that helps obfuscate things a little bit, which I don't mind. Yeah, I yeah I I do feel. I want to be con- uh, responsible in my recommendations and I want to be responsible in my consuming patterns. Of course. And if I have the choice of supporting somebody with good politics, I would rather do that than somebody with bad politics. Oh, yeah. No, that, surprise, I understand surprise, that. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, there's the, it's difficult to do that because it, it's, it's happened before. The worst author you know, like the, the horrible person, will eventually, and it has happened, uh, write a very good book and that actually makes good political points and uh, the inverse can also be true because the creative process can do that it can create interesting and, and different representations and you know it's we should it's not that we shouldn't engage with it but uh let's be aware of those differences and those nuances and in this case the the very large difficulty of like uh, I'm not entirely sure, and I am, I'm not, uh, sure of the book's own political standing, but at the very least, it's very aware of these class relationships. It's very materialistic in its outlook and understanding these connections. And even to the point of, you know, universal basic income and its representation in the book, which is quite intriguing. Uh, you want to talk about that, Leon? <laughs> That's an amazing callback, by the way. You, <laughs> wow, that's. Um, no, it, it's. I'm sorry, glad I'm improving <laughs> over four years. No, you, you've always been great, but <laughs> yeah, I, it's not on. easy to you know navigate. <laughs> but um, no, yeah. So universal basic income was such a. It was a thing that like well to talk about American politics real quick. Uh, it was a thing that was floated by a political candidate called Andrew Yang, I believe. 
I don't know, um, frankly. Yeah, it was one of the Democratic people that was running for a while against Biden mm. in the last, uh, and he was like, UBI, UBI, and like that. It and um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to try and remain as sincere as humanly Leon Lee possible, but um, it was in true American polit- politics or just Western politics in general, I suppose. In true American politics fashion, it was used as a marketing term, as in, oh yeah, free money for everybody, and like, which there was no, um, as far as I could assess, no proper understanding of pro- proper redistribution of goods. It's UBI. Once again, if you like UBI, man, do I have a book for you? It's called the <laughs> Communist Manifest. <laughs> anyway, it's it's um. So once again, if you think that's a good idea, welcome, comrade. Um, like <laughs> I have some literature for you. Um, truly, if 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 that gets you going, then wait. Wait for the the uh, better, stronger brother or sibling, I should say, of uh, of UBI called uh, socialism. But um, other than that, hey. to stop being coy for two seconds, this <laughs> book also understands, and I love them for it. I love them dearly for it. That UBI is bullshit. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. It is a at best, it's a tool of in this case global, in our case, uh, in our world, um, nationwide pacification. The problem is when we sign over this agreement to UBI and we take their money, it's it it is this once again it's this very not not so much a social contract anymore, but an everything contract. As in, well, you if you fall between the cracks of UBI and you do not register uh, registered for anything, then you fall into a very dark pit uh, in this in this world in this United Nations ruled world. This happened to one of the characters of the Rosanante, which I, I feel we should have uh, introduced by now, but there are so many, so many beautiful things to get into. I'm so sorry, yeah. dear listener. <laughs> it has happened to one of the crewmates of the, uh, of the um, one of the main characters called James Holden. And uh, we will get to him uh, maybe later, I don't know. But it's... Um, <laughs> maybe we'll get to the next Expanse episode. Maybe that's better. I don't know. <laughs> Because we'll I, that's one of my favorite characters. To to tie them back to the story at hand, we we have this um, we have this kettle pot situation in the solar system between the Belters and mainly the OPA faction within Belters, which, in true anti-imperialist fashion, don't agree with each other on anything. Um, <laughs> I will, yeah, I, you know, having read so much media, sorry, having read so much literature, and have watched. And uh, you know, played I suppose so much media that does utterly shit leftist progressive criticisms. Yeah, um, this one is a lot more fair. Yeah, I would. I we kind of have to own up to this one. I would argue. Oh yeah, no, I I uh, I respect him for it. Yeah. So the OPA, the radical arm of the Belters, have factions within them. It's there's no. It is a decentralized, uh, very anarchist. I would argue. Yeah. An uh, anarchist characterized uh, political, I would say, body, but that's the point. It is not a body. <laughs> it is um, autonomous arms and limbs and heads floating through space, if you will, <laughs> um, which is somehow less horrifying than what actually happens in this book. But hey. we'll get to that as well. I love these books because there are so many layers to them, like ogres and onions. There are there's so much to this. You will find something you like. 
I'm I'm going to go out on, go out on a limb here and say there is going to be something you like in these books. I will I will then intervene and say that the the first book, for example, is it is at all times a science fiction, a detective, and a horror story all at once. Yes, yes, and a political thriller, of course, because even though we don't visit Earth. When we don't visit Mars, I believe, in the first book, no. we just visit the belt. And, and and it's by far the more interesting place, I would argue. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's the vibrant culture that seeps through the whole series of Belters is one of the main elements and the themes of this series, I would argue. The, the book never gives up on that. No. If this... If this book series had a main protagonist, it would be the Belters. Oh, yeah. It would be the Belter people. And I'm not just talking about the first three books. I'm I'm just going to spoil there. They're going to remain relevant in different ways. And, you know. (laughs) Anyway, we'll talk about that when we get to talk about that. But um, we start off with that. And uh, James Holden is a uh, dishonorably discharged uh, naval officer from the United Navy. Uh, the United Nations Navy, the UNN. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. The military loves their um, acronyms. Not acronyms. It has decent understanding, I would argue, of uh, this jingoism, if you will. Mm-hmm. There's this beautiful line in these books. It comes up in the second book, I believe. What's the most dangerous thing after a Martian Marine, a United Nations Marine? And, like, you know, to, like, argue a little bit on the point you were making, there is still everybody is really weird about everything about like being different from each other, from being a duster or an earther, which are I don't know, those are not good slurs, James S. A. Corey, which speaks well of you. It, I, I, if you were really good at making slurs, <laughs> I would be suspicious of you. So cr- cr- credit where credit is due. Uh, those are some lame slurs, and that speaks well of you, my friend. Dusters um, are very lame slur, yes. <laughs> Dusters and earthers are very n- not good. What kind of soil they have? Dust and earth. Well, there you go. Okay, sorry, sorry. At least skinnies is about the body. Like you, you know, you hit them where it hurts. I guess. But my point being is that there is this quite thorough understanding of militaristic attitude never quite paying off this hits home in the second one i would argue to then go talk a bit about the setting that's going on here the first book is about if i have to summarize it what if aliens show up and we all think that we as earth uh, in this case you know we as humans would unite against the alien uh, no we wouldn't <laughs> Fuck, fuck yourself. No, yeah, we that's, that's such a... The book understands this, and I'm really happy because I always thought this was such a imbecilic idea um, and of not understanding struggle, not understanding history, not understanding quite literally anything, really, to be honest. But, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's this very... Um, how do we say this? Let's just, let's just start at where, uh, where the story begins, which is there's a strange blue goo somewhere uh, that that hits um an asteroid somewhere and is spotted by phoebe station right uh so the moon uh or ice moon or ice asteroid phoebe yeah is effectively a kind of alien time bomb that must that hit a different asteroid and kind of got stuck in the belt yeah so uh that was effectively a kind of biological weapon uh, aimed at Earth yeah. some billion years ago? 
which by pure chance missed. Yeah. Um, what's in this time bomb? <laughs> it is something called the delightful and very simple proto molecule. I think that's a decent name. I like um, it. At I least know, it makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a very <laughs> simple name. It's v- very at the core of the question there. Yeah, and it's called this because it seems to be able to change matter. A hence proto molecule. Yeah. It sure protos the fuck out of those molecules, I will say. It does. It's uh, quite something. One would be uh, not wrong if we were to compare it to a virus, in a way. Mm-hmm. That's really smart and doesn't really care about your physics and your understanding of physics. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. However, well, okay. So, this this little thing, this microbial slime, slime counter thing. Um, sorry. <laughs> so, um, I, I always feel, when I say slime, I feel the uh, comforting presence of of uh, the horror vanguard hosts ghosts uh, floating around me, <laughs> but um, it's <laughs> but in but in all seriousness, yeah, it's it's a dangerous slime. It's a dangerous blue slime that, uh, of course, <sighs> a corporation gets their hands on. Yeah, because there's severe privatita- privatization going on throughout our little solar system. Because of course there is. Yeah, this book once again, this last I'll say about uh, it understanding things. Beautiful understanding of neoliberal corporates, military-industrial complex alliances. See, this is what happens if you keep billionaires around. They're going to fuck up with life forms it, they don't know and commit galactic genocide. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Jules Piermel is Bezos. <laughs> but I'm also not not saying that. <laughs> it's Bezos, but like, cooler, I guess. I don't know. We're going to have to talk in a different episode about the show. Yeah, uh, for current political reasons as well as um, as just time reasons, you know. But there's a very important scene in the show in season two, uh, or three, I forgot, no two, where there is a more wholehearted condemnation of Jules Piermel. The very important decision that we see him make, because once again, Jules Piermel only shows up through point of view characters, and TV shows don't have to do point of view characters. Yeah, as uh. Uh, sometimes the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, for example, used really well. Uh, <laughs> gonna, gonna stop there. Don't worry. Don't worry. Not gonna. I will say, uh, George R. R. Martin is friends with the writers of these book series. Uh, George R. R. Martin is on the quote is on the cover of this uh, book series, with saying a space opera how it ought to be written. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it sounds captivating, George. I mean, sounds... there's there's some really big references to Martin's work, especially in the fourth book. So, really, we'll we'll talk about that off off camera. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, you're there's fine. no camera here, by the way, folks. But we will talk about it off recording, um, <laughs> and we will probably talk about it again when we talk about the fourth book. Oh yeah. Anyway, so blue space goo gets everywhere, kind of sorta, but it is. Not through a rampant spread of the blue goo, <laughs> but rather, well... Intent. Yeah. Do you want to... I've been monologuing too much. I, no, I, I don't no, wanna... I'm, I'm happy to go there. So it, here's the thing, okay. right? Because um, we, get, we get involved in this. So it's like, effectively, corporation found something extremely dangerous that they don't know, don't understand, and want to half-weaponize and half-sell. Preferably both. And, 
let's try and find out what it does, leaving it to do kind of what it was going to do. So if it was aimed at Earth kind of some billion years ago, it was going to consume organic life and matter, okay, and it seems to grow off radiation. Right. So let's set it up in an isolated station and see what it does. It does pretty much what you'd expect. It kills everyone. Yeah. Or does it? <laughs> it what, what it seemingly does then is it infects a body, and from this body it spreads. It's, uh, or, and does it spread? So, I want to like, talk about the two POV characters real quick. Mm-hmm. It's the, <laughs> the main main character, James Holden, Indeed, starts off on a ice, ice hauler, as they are calling it, called the Canterbury. And Canterbury uh, goes and checks out the distress signal. And uh, the shit goes wrong. They are blown up by people they don't know who, but only because Mars is so advanced, as we said earlier. See, it's all coming together. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's uh, They are blown up by we don't know who, but the only faction that they think is as at advanced as all that it can only be mars right because only mars has that kind of tech laying around of course <laughs> of course right only and... this is a book so you know we, we have some <laughs> doubts this is nine part series so it's not going to be that straightforward <laughs> <That's>, yeah, quite. <laughs> oh it was mars world credits no um that's sadly not what or well luckily it's not what's going to happen they get off that of the ice hauler and check out the distress signal of the ship. The ship. The ship is weird. We don't like the ship. It has something weird around it. its nuclear. Uh, oh, well. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about fusion engines in the next episode. <laughs> they are fun. They are fun. I I, I want to talk about that a bit more, but I can't in this episode. We already have too much to get through. Yeah. It's yeah. Sorry, dear listener. <laughs> P- put that pin into the Epstein drive for my for me. Please. I'm so sorry. But it's um. Something happens. Uh, they are not alone, and apparently it was it, it was a trap, uh, like that other sci-fi franchise, right? <laughs> Star Trek, I believe. I'm not quite sure. Of course. It's <laughs> then, then the Canterbury gets blown up, but luckily Holden and a couple other people were off the ship at that time, and so Holden goes on this little shuttle, and has a little adventure, and Holden does the most Holden thing. Throughout, throughout the series, there's one constant, and that's Holden fucking up. Holden <laughs> then goes onto the ultra-mega internet that can just broadcast <laughs> everything to everyone or something. We never really go into detail how feeds work. Yeah. But okay, sure. Super Twitter. Super Twitter. It's, it, it goes on t- Super Twitter. <laughs> Super X. Uh, don't. I see. I was thinking about making that joke, and I didn't. Because I'm a respectable man. No, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Frank. But uh, I'm no yeah. man. So <laughs> he says, like, we are being chased by Mars. Mars blew up the Canterbury. Fuck Mars. And this makes the Cold War a bit hot. <laughs> yeah. And, and we see this other person react to this. The other POV person. Josephus Miller. And we're just going to call him Miller. He is a quote-unquote corporate cop uh he's just a cop why the quotes yeah well he's a cop (laughs) and fulfills all the functions of a normal cop but the imagine a police being uh department being owned by a a company 
that company owns a lot of stuff, by the way. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah, oh, Christ. Okay, they're a subsidiary of the big one. Yeah, well, it's a subsidiary of a subsidiary, I believe, which is yeah. you know topical, I guess. And he's like, oh my god, this holding guy is such an imbecile. <laughs> and even and I will never forgive the writers for this. They kind of make me like the cop. They do. Now they really do. There's a long-standing debate. They don't make him likable, by the way. I will they say. Um, <laughs> once again, they are very responsible about the dystopia. Very polite, I would argue. Or what they are doing is once again, they're not pulling any punches. This cop is a piece of shit, but I kind of like him. Uh, you know, it's it just I don't know. Compared to Holden, somehow I like him better, and I hate to say <laughs> that. I I don't like Holden. I don't like Miller either, but I do find both of them interesting, and they are very mm. well crafted characters. I would argue. Yeah, this is not a criticism of the. Uh, you know, I'm joking around. Like I, 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 I do feel conflicted, but that's good. That's good. I feel something. Yes. Imagine that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and Joseph Miller reacts to Holden by, "Oh my god, what a, what an idiot!" Anyway, I'm gonna oppress some people and take bribes. <laughs> so <laughs> what he does. Well, okay. Yeah, sadly, it's kind of what he does. And I am sorry to listen, it's going to be a thing. I am unsure, because I started rereading these books around the same time Frank started. I finished my rewatch of the show, and all my books, of course you including did. some novellas. Of course you did. And Frank just, it's just started book four, which is cool. It's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. Um, <laughs> but um, no, uh, so because of that, it's not that fresh anymore in my head. And I might mix up show with book a bit. And I'm sorry for that. That's fine. Uh, so I'm relying on Frank to, like, set me straight here. <laughs> Does he take a bribe in the books as well? So Does we see him take a bribe? Probably. I don't remember, okay. but I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. But it's, it's, it's somewhat fairly likely. Uh, he, I think that's the interesting thing, right? He's a cop. He's a cop. In, in, in other words, he's terrible. Yeah. We see him... Go oppress a riot. Yeah. Which he is also a gets something. a very interesting name in the show, not in the books, I believe. But in the show, they found a new world called Walwala, which is Belter for uh, traitor to his people. Which I was like, yes, yes, yeah. call him out, call him out. Yeah. Because um, once again, Miller is performing such a real function, right? Of like people who want to escape their class boundaries by being henchmen for uh, rich people. Yeah. Cops. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. No, you're um, utterly but, correct. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just try to keep my coyness in check, if that, if, uh, if that's the right word, <laughs> my glibness. And what I find so beautiful about this, about the storyline of Miller, it doesn't pay off, now does it? <laughs> Being a corporate henchfuck, it doesn't in any any way, shape, or form. So there is this girl that's missing. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I'm thinking about how much we've covered and how we're still in, in technically in the story of book one, how how to speed up. Fuck, yeah, uh, right. yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, no, you're fine. So, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit speedy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. No, no, no. You're totally you're totally right to do so. So, generally, what ends up happening is Miller gets obsessed with this girl Julie Mao, who is the the daughter of. Uh, Bigwig Jules Pierre Mao of Mao Kwiatkowski Mercantile, big, big company, owns corporate company. Super Amazon. He's a cop. Yeah, <laughs> Super Amazon. You're right. 
Super Amazon. <laughs> and sorry, it's basically like, oh, wild rebellious daughter ran away, kidnap her, and send her back. That's 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 the job. They 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 say it's a kidnap job. <laughs> Why be subtle about the horrible things you're doing? Yeah. What I like about Miller is that he at least knows he's a fucking scumbag. He does. Like, Holden, and this is what, I, I don't know, and maybe it's not fair, but Holden stands on this plateau, whereas Miller knows he's just fucking, he's, he's the worst. He knows he's well, Wala. The thing is, uh, Miller, uh, Miller, uh, Holden goes for a very annoying arc, which I'm, I always find a bit obnoxious in book two, where he's like, oh, I'm kind <laughs> of being terrible, becoming someone I'm not who I am, and oh, what do I do now? And it's like, just talk to someone, go to therapy, talk things, you know, instead of hiding and repressing your feelings away. It's like just... Yeah, but therapy doesn't take his company script, so, you know. <laughs> Which there is script, by the way. I love that. Love that little labor history element to it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> and so so that's, so that's the thing. But Miller gets a bit uh, obsessed. Obsessed is the right word. And uh, ends up in coverage. It's like, wait, where, where'd she go? And it's like, she was in the ship that Holden found and triggered the destruction of the Canterbury and, you know, everything that started going wrong. And to, to really speed things up, uh, Holden ends up going uh, with, his, with his crew. They, um, after they survive uh, the, the destruction of the Canterbury, they go to a, a they're captured by a Martian vessel. And, um, well, things go wrong. The Martian vessel is attacked, and they go into a uh, like a, a leftovers ship. Yeah, and th- they become its de facto crew with this cuddled Martian vessel, pretty much, and uh, kind of like, okay, what do we do now? And trying to unravel everything that's going on. The people who destroyed their home really killed their friends, and uh, you know are kind of setting up the, the the greatest war ever seen and they meet up with Miller and then they uncover the big thing the alien stuff the proto molecule and they sadly find Julie in a different station they find her in Aero station sadly that is that is the place where things are, are about to go worse because uh, remember that bit about genocide and uh, setting up the the station to kill everyone or to let like, the proto molecule does its thing. So so this is what happens, and uh, <laughs> suddenly you have a, a massive station full, filled with uh, vomiting zombies, infecting everyone and consuming all of them into this thing, which is starting to grow and become more with this matter called the proto molecule. The good thing about the expanse is somehow. We always find new tragedy tragedies, and um, yeah, it it gets worse. Um, I think this is the the worst this book gets almost. But then, oh, this thing which was supposed to go to Earth now it's trying to go to Earth again, and they kind of try to stop it, fail to do so again and again. Miller kind of like, okay, I'm I'm fine to die here as this thing is kind of attempted to be propelled into the sun. It's not because it defies gravity. Huzzah! Huzzah! Who cares about a no-show or momentum in this thing? We're, we're the proto-molecule. We're more powerful than that. And um, <laughs> Miller ends up uh, finding like this origin point of the proto-molecule. And uh, it, oddly enough, it kind of fixated on Julie. So Miller is able to find what is left of Julie that is half-powering this 
hive mind proto molecule. Well, Julie um, brought it onto Eros, right? Yeah, because she was infected in the the, the scopuli, the scopuli, which is yeah. the, the vessel that everyone found, and uh, the, then uh, Protogen, the you know evil corporation, well, redundancy, the corporation kind of set her up there to infect everyone on Eros, and because she wasn't, she was isolated in a motel bathroom, and uh, they potentialize her, and Miller kind of connects with her. Weird, weird, weird. And uh, kind of convinces it to go to Venus, where it yeah. starts doing the next thing. And the protomolecule goes on <laughs> hold for a block. Kind of, yeah. not really. Well, it's there. It's there. Menacingly. And it's affecting things in book two. Uh, two to, to try and do a very brief runaround for, for book two, because book three is where things kind of come to a head and we've been speaking for over an hour. In book two, escalation. Because, okay, the protomolecule's been dealt with. It wasn't Earth, uh, or it wasn't Mars doing this, and it wasn't the OPA doing any of that. They didn't destroy the ice hall, or they didn't destroy the Martian vessel. It was this private corporation. Who could have guessed that was more powerful than one of the, the current national governments? Or planetary governments, really. And in this current situation, the protomolecule kind of had some, I don't know, uh, how do I put it, scouting units or scouting drones? Or material that's like, or material that is being manipulated and adapted and trying to be turned into a weapon? So the molecule is in, the protomolecule is on the background, while once again in this book, Another corporation is trying to weaponize these things and forces an escalation into the Earth and Mars fleet by the destruction of an entire outpost, which was really important for farming and uh, shipping grain and food throughout the belt, uh, which was Ganymede. And the colonies spiraling and things are going really wrong here in, in Caliban's War, which is book two. Uh, so the Leviathan woke in book one. That was a protomolecule. Book two, Caliban's War. War is going, starting to go on and things start going pretty bad. And it's... Oddly enough, the second book is somewhat similar to the first one uh, in terms of there is a kind of a mystery and something to be solved. It's like, who's doing this? Who's kind of forcing this? And there's a lot of interesting things going on in the second book and in understanding how that materialism and those connections with, well, the cascade effect. Because we have the point of view of a character called Praxidite Meng, or Prax for short. The audiobook uh, person calls it a, calls him Praxidite Meng. Oh, thank you. That's a... I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Let's just call him Prax. It's a, the diplomatic outcome there. <laughs> I'm so sorry, please continue. No, no, uh, you're, that's fine, that's good. Uh, it keeps me in check. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's an understanding of how, well, this is an extremely delicate state of affairs, which was already shook up by book one, and things are kind of getting worse in this one, uh, whereas like, we can very easily annihilate one another. The, the quote that Leon mentioned, that the only strongest thing than one is the other, uh, there's talk about how easy it is to, and frankly, it is if they've got ice haulers and ships and ships in orbit and whatnot, to kind of annihilate either planet. You just need to throw heavy enough stones to 
annihilate either planet. Funny you say that. Anyway, let's move on. I mean, that that happens in 2312. All you need is a good throw. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, not one of the things we talked about, but uh, y- y- yeah, it's it's pretty bad. The, the, the point stands. It's all very delicate. It's all very fragile. No, 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 no. All this seeming, oh, the might of Earth, the, Mar- the might of Mars. It's all standing in a precipice because it's so easy to, you know, break that and kind of destroy everything, destroy planets, destroy entire communities because it's all connected. It's very this materialist engagement and understanding, which we're talking about. And which is timely that in this book, we get the view of Prax, the biologist, and we get of the, the politician, Christian Avasarala, who Liam mentioned before, and it's like this shadow ruler of the United Nations Earth. <laughs> yeah, at first she shares it with somebody else but, called uh, Shadowvir Ehrenreis. Yes. But, uh, so real quick for the audience, Christian Afrasavala is like a cooler, better, also very much a war criminal version of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, you know, at least she is an entertaining, strong woman political powerhouse character. The show makes another important detail, a change to her character, is that in the show she is from a diplomatic political lineage. Mm. Uh, she has an elevated function in life because her father knew the other diplomats and it's, it's then, you can read into that that she comes from a power, position of privilege. She had, to, she had to never worry about universal basic income. And therefore, she could rise to such power, positional, positions of power, which I think is a very important detail. But anyway, sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's a good point. And that, uh, what happens in this, in this book is that this, uh, how, do, how do I frame it, that, yeah, the proto-molecules there, y- yes, it's having these odd units and beings that are creating interesting effects. Uh, I won't go into them that much. But effectively, it's about how they're kind of attempted to be weaponized. And Caliban's War is a lot more about a political scheme and its many, many consequences than, um, you know, about the actual alien nature going on. Yeah. And when that kind of unravels, there are both consequences and issues there. I I like that sense of consequences because it's like, it's not just, oh, this cool thing happened or this weird thing happened. It's like, no, th- this happened and now all will pay for it. Remember the can't. Remember the can't. Remember the can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to move on to book three. <laughs> well, I would, I would like to say that book two ends with Arthur Savala is essentially becoming the de facto ruler of uh, UN. Yes. I will say book two had to do a lot of uh, strong women characters because uh, book one is just two point of view guys, <laughs> like two point of view yeah. characters. Both are men, both are he- straight <laughs> heterosexual uh, men, and uh, which is you know, that's whatever. And it was like, oh fuck, okay, uh, here's Bobby. Bobby is <laughs> a fucking powerhouse, yeah. an idiot nationalist, but that's gonna change. Don't worry. <laughs> nice. Um, it's uh, still sympathetic towards the military, but uh, it's, it's fine. B- B- Bobby has one of my favorite quotes. It's that. I don't use sex as a weapon, but I use weapons as weapons. Which, <laughs> sure, a bit trite, maybe, but from the heart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, really like her. Avasarala is then the um, 
super, super matriarchal embodiment of political shrewdness, I would argue. Uh, and and eating pistachios. Yes. And, <laughs> and and using this very gruff language of a little small Indian woman as a way to disarm like men. I, I do find it very interesting. Oh yeah. Like you know, just I'm not for body shaming, but this out of nowhere talking about like men's dick sizes, you know, uh, a bit a bit a bit a bit crude, but effective. In in that very and she she does does she does believe in this. In my humble opinion, failed notion of feminism, where uh, where she says, "Oh, there's too much testosterone in this room," whereas you know that is something that Hillary Clinton would say, wouldn't she? And then Hillary Clinton would then commit the same amount of war crimes, <laughs> or Margaret Thatcher, or well, really, whatever Western woman we have had in power anywhere. Really, it's almost as if the system itself. Hmm. does certain things <laughs> no matter of your personal individual identities hmm if only there was some okay no no we don't we don't have time for this uh, if only there was some kind of you know theory that focus anyway moving on sorry frank please, no no uh, no that, that was, i just that want was... to just want yeah i just want to give those two characters a little bit more uh sunshine no of course because that's that's really important book two ends with the thing at venus doing a thing right yeah so for those who don't know, Venus is harsh. It's bad. You don't want to be on Venus or Jupiter, but you know, Venus has like radioactive storms. It's dope. It's, okay, I don't know about the worst, but like, you know, it's bad, man. The protomolecule does this weird thing where it like it gets destroyed by the environment, but not utterly. And it rebuilds, and it gets destroyed, and it rebuilds, and it gets destroyed, and it gets rebuilds. And all of a sudden, this observation station that has been this impromptu observation station that's now hovering above Venus, so because we need to check on the alien life form, <laughs> or is it? And what is it doing? And all of a sudden, it reaches out and grabs, like, non physically. It just happens. It just feels of energy, I suppose, that are invisible to our naked eyes. You reach out to the station and just take it apart in uh, out of nowhere. Yeah. The, the show does this. Uh, if if you're not gonna watch the show, just Google like expands Arbogast. Uh, it's a beautifully made scene, but the side here or there, it's 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 also like some the suddenness of like being taken apart to be understood by a a thing that's orders of magnitude above you. The way it is described, I think, and done portrayed in the show once again is very captivating. <laughs> the language that is used to describe this other thing that is not meant for us to be understood is very good. I would say it's one of my favorite <laughs> uh, writings of the weird that I have ever read. But the next book, that's where it really hits its stride. But yeah, it, it launches them from Venus into space and. Does a thing. What does it do? It sets up what everyone starts calling the ring. <laughs> no points for creativity, but go on. The ring is truly a gateway. A gateway into... Who the fuck knows? People thought, is this going to be Star Wars? Is this going to be Star Trek? No, it's Stargate, baby. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it, it, is, it isn't, by the way. I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> The, the the interesting thing, and that's why I also want to talk about book three, is um, if book one is like this discovery, 
book two with uh, some of the consequences and the sort of like reaccommodation of the status quo, like trying to eliminate these enemies, these corporate enemies and, and figures that were like propelling a, a com- an amount of conflict. And it's like, okay, let's let's maintain this detente between Earth and Mars. This is the most the most successful and most productive, rather than you know all out fucking war, because you know uh, Christian is extremely intelligent and it's like you fucking imbecile you like what the hell are you trying to do yeah yeah <laughs> i i do love a competent war criminal not to cheer on but to revel in their awfulness and their competence i do think that's good <laughs> writing but go on agreed Sorry. uh so in this one it's like this has happened before but now it is like this unknown has taken a literal shape and form. So what now? What 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 happens? What do we do now? Well, generally there's this setup of like, oh, a kind of diplomatic mission or something up to the edge of the ring and see what's going on. And, you know, there's, uh, we have some very interesting characters in the shape of Pastor Anna Volovodov. Methodist priest. Methodist priest and a generally incredible person. Uh, <laughs> very effective for the taster I, I, I love her so much <laughs> probably one of my favorite characters right up there with Brax uh, and Christian oh yeah definitely but what happens is okay there's this gateway into the literal unknown and uh, what now so the, you, you get this like a religious corp you get this diplomatic core you get, you'd go this official mission there and you get the uh, a large portion of media people media people you got the M- martian navy going on there and scientists you got earth navy and scientists going on there uh, you get a opa uh it is it after book one and and via holden and uh certain help and whatnot starts building some political rapport and start playing somewhat level playing field with earth and mars not really but closer to in the figure of the leader leader of a larger or stronger faction within the OPA, Fred Johnson, who is so much that we don't have time to talk about Fred Johnson yet, unfortunately. Uh, Maybe we do. Leon can interject. But (laughs) he he is something. Uh, He is also a war criminal uh, turned politician, turned different sides. Lots going on there. So, so much to this book, <laughs> so much to this book, and about like the, the fragility of political allegiance, because political allegiance to that regard doesn't, it's, if it, it can be so small, because political allegiance isn't allegiance, uh, uh, any kind of allegiance like a, a, um, an ideological sense in which you actually believe and, and you stand for it is different than the political side, because the political side can demand a certain amount of commitment or compromise or you know you go and you commit those war crimes and you can go or you can not go with uh, various degrees of consequences on both ends for you and others involved and uh, Fred Johnson is a character who deals a bit of that Uh, Christian deals with that Bobby has a bit I from what uh, Leon's implied will continue to do that further. So much. It's free fucking box for Christ's sakes. Uh, we're doing our best. Yeah. Just saying, dear listener, if you if you have read these things, we're gonna do the other books as well, and there's gonna be two Homer episodes. So 
Well, we don't get to right now. We will eventually. We don't get to talk about a character. We will eventually. Oh yeah, trust me. So, what I what really grabbed me about, uh, I mean, talking about this third book, and you know, everyone going on there, and now the OPA is going on there, going over there in a ship, which we don't have time to talk about either. I will leave that ship to talk about in the start of the next episode because there's a really great line by one of the characters talking about that and talking about names. So I'll hold off on it. There will be time for it all. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be fine. But everyone's interested in this unknown. And it's like, how is this going to change things? And of course, of course, Holden's going on there. Huzzah. Holden's always involved in the, ba- the galaxy's biggest events. Because that's just who he is. Yeah. That is really how he goes through life. He's the person the universe decided to fuck over. Um, and he's perfect for the job. Beautiful idiot. Beautiful idiot. A well-intentioned <laughs> idiot. That's why I like him, but he's... Christ. So... He, he, he gets better at it. He though. does, he does. But he does ha- need a steep learning curve, but okay. He really does. So, before we get into the intricacies of what's going on in the ring, what is really interesting, and that's this is something this book deals with, is, you know, if we think about where cosmic horror became really you know, prominent or, or more, you know, I'm not going to say well accomplished, but it it was more uh, frequently accomplished, which is, you know, obviously Lovecraft. And you know, we've spoken about him before. But, and recently too, check out the uh, Bottle of Black Tom episode. Yay. <laughs> there's there's a, an older episode on the color out of space, uh, which is also really a really good episode. I, I recommend it too. And... You know, it's like that that quote, like, oh, humanity's greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm a psychologist. Um, and I'm not that <laughs> kind of philosopher either. But regardless, the question is, how do you deal with a face in the face of this unknown? And one of our main characters here is a priest, someone who is trying to reconcile th- their own view of God with, you know, this alien life form, alien species who who sent the proto-molecule into this worldview this gateway into their worldview and trying to and that's why Anna is so interesting be open to it and not closed to it this religious dimension is really strong in this book and as a catholic i found it so interestingly represented because you know as the story progresses and you know I mentioned this before. Tragedy is a very common theme going through the, well, the Expanse. And I can only imagine what worse tragedies I'm going to see in the next six books. And in the face of tragedy, how do you reconcile? How do you understand? How do you try to find a solution out of it? You try to find a source of hope and try to confront that. And like, no, we. if there is a solution to this, if there is a positive way forward, it requires a different kind of commitment than the one we've been in a different kind of relationship than, you know, this Cold War idea between Earth, Mars, and the belt. And the one that has oppressed the belt throughout its history. So it it requires something else. And it doesn't require, it doesn't demand a sort of uh, closing off a millenarist perspective of, you know, it's like, no, we need to do this. We need to sacrifice in order to do this. In this incredibly misguided idea of engaging the unknown, that precludes its destruction because it's done something to harm you. Yeah, it's they've used very interesting language. Um, and with they, I mainly mean one person, 
called Cortez? Yes. Cortazar? Hector Cortez, no. I think. Hector Cortez. Funny last name choice there, but okay. Hmm. I'm, I'm referring to the conquistador, colonizer, <laughs> asshole Cortez, <laughs> who didn't burn his own ships, probably, but anyway. <laughs> but the burning of the ships is very interesting, I would argue. Because if Cortez could have, like, blown up the ocean or burned the ocean instead, he would have, I think, maybe. <laughs> uh, within the narrative of that little story, once again, probably didn't happen. Once again, there was a guy named Cortez and he was a horrible colonizer, not discounting that. It's just, instead, we choose to, like, burn the gate. We try to, like, you know, kill the gate so that the humanity is safe and all that. And he says, like, with other... <laughs> other conviction, he says, uh, well, we, we, we were never meant to stray this far. Uh, <laughs> God is not here. God is not among us here. We have failed and we should atone no offense, but very Christian language here at play. Yeah. About like about guilt and having indulged in the unknown, which is inherently sinful, according to him. Yes. And that's a debilitating debilitatingly stupid disposition to have. Once again, like you said, there are interesting debates to be had about fear of the unknown. Yeah. Once again, I'm also not gonna say um if if, if that's the worst fear or whatnot and so forth. I don't necessarily believe in classifications of fear. I think that's a fundamentally useless, uh, interesting, philosophically, maybe, but a strong, prescriptive classification of these things, I'm not here for it. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, he also has this very funny line when Anna von Lovodov becomes antagonistic towards him, and he says, like, oh, man, I sh I know I should have asked for Mohammed Mahmouni or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's wonderful, really. Um, but anyway, it's uh, yeah, I just find that language he used very very fascinating. Yeah, do you want to finish up? Because there's a couple of questions I would like to ask. Yeah, you, yeah, uh, as well about this. Of course, it's it's then interesting how in in this mess in this, uh, Holden's uh, again playing a ma massive role because uh, due to his contact with. Frankly, the last person that the, the proto-molecule absorbed, Miller. Miller started showing up for Holden as like this... In his head, yeah. Yeah, like this projected image only to Holden. Because that takes a lot of processing power. And... Um, <laughs> start, I love that passage, but sorry, go on. <laughs> starts giving cryptic hints to Holden. And then um, eventually in a setup, Holden's kind of forced to go into the ring. And then they are into this black region of space where there is nothing but a station in the center yeah and as we find out other closed gateways around them and holden being holden goes into the station and has this eventual moment where it's like oh here's what happened to for this station to be in this place in this sort of frankly quarantine status a hive mind civilization which created the proto molecule was under a threat via an infection kind of thing. And not even the burning of whole systems could stop it. So the station <laughs> itself declared a quarantine. And now it seems there is no one else. Yeah, it's very interesting, the language that's being used here. So first off, the protomolecule is not an alien. The protomolecule is a really cool wrench. It's a tool. It's, it's, you know, it's a thing that is just there to make the ring gate. Which shows you, once again, the way it meant it, it. It's like moves through the solar system, despite being aided by 
hyper debilitatingly stupid billionaires. <laughs> Once again, the Proto Molecule has bad luck that it is trapped in Phoebe, the way it is. But then it has very good luck that we have capitalism. Not a good way to go about anything. And it's just a tool by, by the actual alien race that's no longer there. Yeah. <laughs> and when we, and it's very beautifully done how we go to the space station, like, well, the aliens will be there, and there's nothing there. There's only this painfully eerie silence until there isn't. But that's not a real alien, it's an automatron. Anyway, <laughs> don't worry about that. Go read the book. This, this, this vision that is then bestowed upon Holden, because surprise, surprise, Holden goes into the slow zone and there's a, this space, a station there. Then Miller is like, yo, it'd be so cool if you got to the space station. Please go to the space station. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess I have to. Because otherwise we will all die in the slow zone and whatnot. We're in a place where physics starts, it doesn't mean much. And uh, maximum speed is controlled. And if you pass it, you're stopped instantly, kind of wrecking anything. Yeah. And these crazy people on an on a ship want to blow up the ring. And once again, this alien species that's inconceivable order, or orders of magnitude above us wouldn't like that very much. We are shown that they can eliminate system after system if they need to. So if somebody touches that ring, they will probably eliminate soul system. Bye-bye, people. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, how this all plays out. We don't have time to get into this necessarily. <laughs> but there is this beautiful passage about, beautifully scary passage about, that once again, these aliens that created the portal molecule are no longer out there. And we get there last words in true Prothean Mass Effect fashion. <laughs> we get this decluttered visual image yeeted into Holden's brain. Like, there you go, buddy. Enjoy. Oh, shit, you're a primitive monkey. Fuck. Anyway, well, uh, try your best, I guess. Shrug. Uh, here's a, a ghost detective. Have fun. There's no direct communication. These are all fill saves within fill saves within fill saves interacting as this, like, robust echo through the death of the makers of the proto-molecule. And it's... <laughs> and the problem being is that these inconceivable people, these are so far above us, were thoroughly annihilated by another thing that's out there Yay. still. Fuck! <laughs> what does that even mean? Um, fear. And the fear. Fear is what that means, indeed. The fact that they could shrivel up star systems and this didn't slow it fucking down insane insane so uh, we we must be careful not to like engage in this um it's gonna sound ridiculous but trust me here <laughs> we must be careful not to engage with this dragon ball c type of thing where people just go really strong really fast and then there's a villain that shows up that's really strong and even faster and then the hero goes through turmoil and it's like Really strong, really, 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 really strong, and really, really, really fast. And uh, okay, well, anyway, you get you get the idea here. I do. The language that and the cryptic, the crypticness of it all, the the fucking, <laughs> the fucking obfuscations that are going on, it serves also beautifully to depict this. Well, quite frankly, cosmic battle between an inconceivable civilization versus an inconceivable being slash civilization thing. Once again, it's confiscated. It's not It's not clear. No. I, I know more, but I'm not going to say that. What we know about them is drip fat at best to, to us. And this serves to, like, not get dizzy or rather 
even worse, bores with the orders of magnitude thing that's going on, right? It's not like the Dragon Ball Z scenario, scenario where we, uh, once again, it becomes a trite, a trope thing. It, it keeps being interesting, the way it is deployed, the way it is utilized. Because for two reasons, the way it is just talked about in the book, the way the writer writes, incredible asset. And also in the way that these revelations are reflected within human culture, how it affects yes. us yes. and how, <laughs> how we respond to these things. And I hate the person that will ask this question or say this statement in these books later on. I won't tell anything more. But I would like to ask you a question. Mm. Is there an alternate universe where humanity is recognizably humanity and would not have gone through the ring? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Definitely not. Right? This character then goes on to describe it like, like monkeys have to, they have to slap the, the, the oven, for example. They don't understand the oven. But they will poke it. There is no way the monkeys are not going to touch the oven or the, uh, the microwave is warm. Uh, it might be a weapon. <laughs> you know, because it's hot, it burns, so it's, it's a weapon. <laughs> and the, the, the same way we approach the ring gates. Is it a weapon? Is the protomolecule a weapon? Uh, maybe. But, but we don't understand that it's just there to maybe heat food for a sort of civilization that's order of magnitudes above anything a monkey can understand. So, uh, I don't like calling humans monkeys. Uh, I think it's very trite and stupid. But the person that says it, sadly, is only correct about this small thing. <laughs> Their conceptualization of this thing is still wrong, but they do stumble upon broken clocks, right? Anyway, yeah, they do stumble upon this truth that I think is a truth. Namely, there is simply no other universe out there, no alternative universe, in which humans, our humans, Look at the ring gate and go too risky, not touching it. It just doesn't happen. It just it's it won't happen. Yeah. So I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna run with it. So then, how <laughs> if the unknown is humanity's greatest fear? Then how do we keep on struggling, pushing against it, investigating this unknown in pretty much any way, shape, or form? Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something bold here. <clears throat> oh, love it. Uh, so. Isn't the the idea of a? Uh, <laughs> oh, I love this point. Uh, isn't the idea then that a future that we do not know beyond through out of capitalism, so that you know can be something else? Isn't it an unknown? And isn't then the this idea that oh, this is all there is that it, it's this or it's worse, inconceivably worse or always terribly worse? This notion that's like, even to the point, and I saw this some time ago, and I, I find it really interesting, very good critique, that, you know, and I, I don't, I'm a historian, I don't miss time travel, but if you, you know, use time travel and whatnot, it's like, oh, it will always get worse, you know, butterfly effect, you can't, you can't improve it, that then our, our certain way of, way of things is all there is, and the best possible one at its current state, then... That is the ultimate fear of the unknown. And yet, here we are pushing against it. There are so many out there. That, I mean, we, we were talking about it earlier. It's about the, the sag after strikes and so many other strikes in, in Los Angeles and elsewhere that are pushing against these very ideas that, you know, this is all there is. 
and it, it is this unto eternity, it, this end of history, and uh, not quite for now. Th- this notion, and which I feel firmly supported by dystopian and a lot of post-apocalyptic narratives, not all of them, of course, but most of them, that you know, this is the best we got, and that's it. Uh, and it can get worse, and we we need to stop getting it worse. But can we make it better? Eh. There's the a fear of this potential unknown and this projection of dystopias and negative ideas into the future. Because uh, frankly, frankly, uh, we live in a kind of dystopia. And I, I think I think that's not a bold statement to say. So is it really imaginative? Is it really fear of the unknown to project dystopian desires into the future? Be they, I don't know, cyberpunk, post-apocalyptic, whatever. Um, wouldn't it really be the unknown to, to challenge and, and, and contrast it with a different kind of future, a utopian future, perchance? That's not idyllic. It doesn't need to be idyllic to be utopian. That's the, there are other forms of utopia that you can imagine. And that will be imperfect all the same. To, to drive that point back as well, Maybe the fear of the unknown is a pretty big fear, if not the, f- the greatest one. And yet, it has always encountered a great deal of resistance in one way or another. Right now, its its greatest its greatest bulwark is in this foreclosing of the future, but it continues to push and drive in other areas of rampant capitalism and more that disregard any potential fear of the unknown. Yeah, and sometimes. You know, it, it, it's the thing, right? It is the unknown. We we do not know. <laughs> and that isn't always terrible. And there is something so human about pushing into it, about going into the fucking ring and messing <laughs> and, and go- crossing the gateway. And it's like, what the fuck's going on? We need to find out more about this and not going home, but about staying and trying to figure things out. And of course, consequences, as Miller, fake Miller, says consequences. I mean, Miller in person gives him a pretty harsh condemnation in book one as well. Yeah. He's on the Rosinante for a couple seconds. Uh, Rosinante is the name of James Holden's ship, by the way. I don't know if you've said that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just want to say real quick, we, we don't have time to get into it anymore, but maybe in future episodes, who knows? I would recommend reading maybe some blog <laughs> of how to siege, lay siege to the future in a positive and utopianistic way. Yes. Once again, the unknown is for me uh, uh, uh this is not me quoting literature or anything or uh theory but the way it makes sense to me and just that to me the unknown is almost identical to potential yeah potential in its most neutral form the potentiality of things happening yeah it is as much to be loved as it is as much to be feared yeah or nothing at all I am fascinated by cosmic horror. <laughs> I love the language once again that is used. It's it's uh, that's used to describe these things when it's at its most poetic and whatnot, and like trying to like lay bare these deep cognitive insecurities that we have. Mm-hmm. I love those. I love it. But since we have to remind people now and then that we are left this podcast, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm reminded of the passage. Then, in response to this narrative. Or this conversation that we are now having and having created, I would argue that I'm reminded of the block passage of that as a leftist or as Marxist, we don't have the luxury of being pessimists 
at least it was Bach. I think so. And how we have to once again lay siege to the future in such a ferocious way, and how we we are not permitted to. Um, be, I I don't have a strong disposition of not reveling in the horror of it all. That's fine, especially from a music <laughs> point of view. However, things for me the way I see it once again, things are always in flux, and nothing. I don't believe in determinism. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in any kind of that kind of sort. I believe that certain choices and things we do echo throughout time and space in very fundamentally material ways and in fair, and also very fundamentally non-material ways, maybe. Yeah. There's always as much reason to, to love and be excited about the unknown as there is to fear it. Yeah. What configuration works for you, I'm not going to tell you. That's something you sadly have to, you know, <laughs> Figure out yourself. You have to know yourself. I just want to, as we are all heading into like some, uh, heading towards some of a, some sort of a ring gate ourselves with a very uncertain future with regarding the future of the planet. No, I don't think the Earth is dying, but you know, <laughs> uh, we are heading towards some uh, troubles here and there uh, in my continent, for instance. Uh, a city is temporarily underwater. It's called Rome. I don't know if you've heard of it. And, you know, like stuff like that. And it's, it's a bit, you know, condescending to talk about that when there have been whole nations who have whole seas underwater. Uh, by now, like Pakistan, like suffered severely from it. But, you know, those are hopefully scary things. But it's, we do not have the luxury. We, we shouldn't look away from it. We should take it very fucking seriously. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But we do not have the luxury to be pessimistic about these things. This ring thing might be a human ending event. It almost was, but it isn't. Yeah, and it ends with all these other ring gates opening to empty systems, and this is such a. I'm not saying this is ethereal intent, but in the narrative that we, are, I, I once again, I'm trying to establish here, it, it is the better future that might arise through if we if if we you know survive the bad stuff, if we don't give in to despair. There is direct positive rewards for that in the material sense. Once again, as this book three ends with all these new planets being open to us and us having to deal with the utopic potential of this. Uh, that's, where, that's where it ends, and that's also where I'll end for now. But yeah, that's, that's my closing thoughts on it. No, that sounds good. I, I think I'm going to close off with, with uh, you know, that... Anna as a, as a character and trying to to navigate all this right that she you know even in and I'm, I'm gonna tone it down to, to a personal level and a non cosmic one but you know we <laughs> we can look at the world via a particular worldview right can look at uh, at the world as a Christian angle and see that it's like oh no but this this is the fruit of sin and uh, th- there are things that need to be punished and you you can create and people have uh, created and developed worldviews that are some that are fairly Christian for a, a great deal of uh, sense, I guess, but that are also so exclusionary, so violent, so destructive, and, and that that can be this this negative force upon the world. Uh, on the other hand, you can still you can look at a raw known as as Anna does and find still and still find room. For, for engaging with, you know, with, with belief in a sense, right? That, you know, maybe what, um, what is faith then than, uh, 
a challenge to to defy your own preconceptions, right? To, to defy what you understood to be your faith, right? That faith, your faith could be, you know, a collection of rights and uh, a certain circumstance for people in a give, given opportunity or a, shall we say, planet and uh, civilization or whatnot. Um, you, you can't say all that, but also, could it be more? It, it, to, to, uh, the point I'm getting at is, Christianity can be a tool for empire, it has been uh, a tool for oppression, for control. And Notoriously so. <laughs> Sorry, go on. You know, of course, that's that's true, and that needs to be reckoned with. And and all the same, given given all that, can it? Is that its only outcome? Is the sense that I'm going at, and you know, trying to draw an odd kind of parallel between Anna being faced with the unknown towards her faith, and you know, me some time ago being faced with this notion. It's like I don't. Um, can I reconcile this challenging of the present and challenging of the world, which is Marxism, <laughs> which is dialectical materialism, with this Christian notion of, 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 of you know, uh, this capital love or this uh, force for union or solidarity even? And it wasn't easy. I've, I've had a, a lot of help. The, the Magnificast was, was strong in, in that regard. John too from Horror Vanguard. And the, 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 the thing is, and, and this is why I'm saying all this, not just to, to share my own experience as I've done quite a few times before, it is to, to drive home the question that with any belief, and it doesn't need to be religious, sometimes or a great deal of times we are led to, to question them uh, or question aspects or dimensions of it. And sometimes we can, you know, fall under a certain kind of pessimism or negativity that you know, can fall into a kind of nihilism and destructive idea. And, you know, that, that further strategy, so to speak, to, as, as you put it, Leon, as a, to fall into despair. And, um, and how, how sometimes that unknown is both external and it is internal. And it's like, how do I understand myself in this world, right? How do I understand my view of the world in the in a changed world, in a world that has other challenges, other ideas, and that can lead to a variety of responses, right? A, a traditional regressive one, uh, a shelling and isolation in face of it, an openness and uh, you know self-absorption and self-destruction within it, or one can try and look at it dialectically and try to understand, it's like okay, but how can can there can there be no amount of in critical engagement? Can I grow from this and not destroy who I am in the process? And can I look to this world in a positive, hopeful sense, a utopian sense, if we can believe that? Quite. Well, there are two things I do want to say about that, and it's very short. Of I'm course. So sorry, no, no, no. Go, 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 go. Okay. Uh, one thing I'm... Uh, no offense. I'm kind of surprised you left out. I think that I uh, noted uh, about Anna Vorlovodov is that her way of practicing faith is intrinsically bound to other people. Mm. Other people are are there first, then there is faith. And she questions these things, these reconciliations with faith about this god that apparently created aliens as well. Fuck, that's weird. <laughs> um, it's, I don't find it weird personally, but you know, it, it is still, you know, like a little bit of a thing. Mm -hmm. Also, my conceptualizations of god are a bit... Um, unorthodox but that's not another same <laughs> yeah, yeah precisely so another episode 
it's that she once again i'm not i'm not a christian but i believe it's new testament where it says that where you are gathered in my name i am there as well to append that quote when two or more are gathered in my name i am present yeah, well, I got the gist of it. <laughs> and once again, not a Christian. Uh, so be happy with what you get, Frank. Um, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, Anna Vodolovodov is such a beautifully, beautiful depiction of that, I would say. And I think she understands that through religious praxis, almost. Yeah. And that, that's very, very beautiful. Um, I do want to say then in the, uh, you know, the, the despair part, it is then maybe, maybe it's coincidence, I don't know. But since this narrative that we have stumbled upon real quick, it's then very funny. It's called Abaddon, Abaddon's Gate, <laughs> the Endless Pit. Yeah. The ring can therefore be, can be in the Endless Pit as Cortez falls into this Endless Pit. Yeah. And what this ring ends up being, well, we will, we will talk about that another time. <laughs> but um, within the reading of these first three books, I find the object of the ring to be terrifyingly <laughs> it's everything it's there, there you go it's everything or yeah i'm just gonna keep it there i, I can I, I can go on for a bit but i won't i won't don't worry yeah i just think it's very funny that's called the bottom of this pit <laughs> because it, it could very well have been and it almost was which is exactly what the future is to me yeah no i i think you're right and uh i think what you, you brought up it, it rounds up perfectly what i was saying right that it this this facing of the unknown of change of you know you know being defied in in the way in we in our understanding our engagement of the world it doesn't it shouldn't be alone right i i was telling people who who were helpful and, and crucial in helping me reconcile with my ideas and you know not um i i, I maybe i would have been become a different person maybe not uh, but I'm glad of the person I am today on account of all, the, all of them and all of what has transpired in me. And I think Anna would say the same, that it is these connections and these ideas that help provide and create hope, right? It, it, can't, it can't be done alone. It requires yeah. other people. It requires this collectiveness. It requires this solidarity to, to face, right? Not just yeah. both for, for individually and collectively. For all of us. Yeah. Well, we can't face anything the future holds, but it has to be together. Precisely. I, I couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> Thank you. And with that, I will let's, yes. uh, uh, let's, let's go. Let's, let's yes. fly off into another gateway <laughs> because uh, we've been here for a little bit uh, in the solar system and it's getting a bit cramped. So, so let's yeah. find more. And what are those green slugs? I don't know what those are, but that's <laughs> fine. I'm sure they are fine. Of course. Don't worry about that. Of course. That. Anyway, take care, everyone. Yeah, no, th thank you so much, everyone. Uh, do do check out our stuff at patreon.com forward slash left page. Support us if you can. Uh, we have a cool Discord. We have some interesting stuff in the works of some bonus content, yes. at which we are workshopping and, and going to make that work, going to make that fun. And, you know, there's quite a, a back catalog of stuff and uh, Patreon stuff, which I might do something with in the future. And... And yeah, check us out if you can. If you can, that's perfectly fine. Uh, thank you for listening this far. Go listen to the to the other Here Be Media episodes. We're doing a lot of interesting stuff lately. And there's 
some great stuff to come this month and more. Before you support us, however, make sure there are maybe any strike funds you can support for the yes, sec yes. after strike. Uh, after that, after you've done that, please then support us <laughs> if you can. Please. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, Leon. But that, that's a bit more important right now. We'll be around, don't worry. Agreed. Um, we'll we'll, we'll yeah. be around come hell or high water. Th- those people striking who need to, to pay for their homes uh, do need it quite more urgently, so please do support them. And yeah, uh, we'll, we'll be around. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you very soon. Yeah, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.